just about every kid has a period in their lives where they love superheroes. Kids idolize the superhero's ability to do the impossible, to fly, their incredible strength, or their x-ray vision. When Pastor Rod was growing up, he loved Superman, and he wanted to be just like Superman. He remembers running around the house with his homemade cape, and whenever he saw a phone booth, he wanted to go in and change into a Superman costume. I think that's amazing that he would share that with all of us. Um, I don't remember as a child that there were a lot of female superheroes growing up that, you know, we could pretend to be. I know the children in our classrooms at school, they are always pretending superheroes. They will get a tablecloth or whatever in the dramatic play, and they will run around and they will say that they are invincible. Superheroes are again becoming popular. New movies are coming out all the time about different superheroes. They're so great because they can do such amazing things. A sad time came when I realized I could not be one of those superheroes because it was impossible. And sometimes I think that we read the Bible like we would read a comic book or watch our favorite superheroes. We look at the amazing things that some of the folks did in the Bible and are amazed by them. We even idolize their lives and their passion for God. But sometimes we see the people in the Bible as people whose superpowers are impossible to match. That may be the case with the Apostle Peter, perhaps the best known of all the disciples, a man of strength and courage, but a human being just like us. Listen to this short encounter with Jesus in this story from Matthew's Gospel. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Everything about this story seems strange. First, Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes Peter. This is some of the harshest language Jesus ever used. Though he used more colorful language when he criticized the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he never called them Satan. For that matter, even though the Bible says that Satan entered Judas, the betrayer, you can find that in John 13, 27, Jesus never called him Satan. The timing makes this whole story even more peculiar. In the preceding verses, Peter has just uttered a magnificent statement of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 16. Jesus responded with high praise of his own. You are blessed. You didn't learn that from man, but from God. Upon this rock I will build my church. I give you the keys of the kingdom. From that high point, Jesus begins to unveil the future to them. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of Jewish leaders. He must be killed. He must be raised on the third day. 
Our problem stems mostly from the fact that all of this is old news to us. If you have been a Christian for any period of time, you know the story of Good Friday and Easter. And even if you aren't a Christ follower, you probably know the general outline. So no matter how we read this story, it's not new news to us. We've heard it all before. And therein lies the problem. The disciples were hearing this for the very first time. And the thought of their master being killed in Jerusalem simply staggered them. They had no categories for it no way to think about its impact or consequences. Jesus told them the bad news, and they couldn't handle it. Evidently, they didn't even hear the part about rising from the dead. They had no category for that either. In Mark's parallel account, he adds that Jesus spoke plainly about the future, meaning he didn't pull any punches. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't say, well, fellas, there might be a little trouble in Jerusalem. Nothing like that. None of it made sense. So Peter did what we generally do when we think someone we love is talking crazy talk. He pulled Jesus aside so he could set him straight. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Twice he told Jesus never. It's as, if he, it's as if he thinks Jesus has momentarily lost his mind. I think Peter meant, Lord, don't worry about it. There are 12 of us. We'll keep you safe. They'll have to go through us to get to you. But you can't get around it. He rebuked the Son of God. This is not a good move for an aspiring disciple of Christ. So we pause to ask our first question. Why did he do it? What was Peter thinking when he pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him? A few possible answers. First, Peter did it because he loved Jesus and wanted to spare him the pain of crucifixion. Surely this must be counted as a noble as well as a misguided emotion. Second, Peter didn't understand God's plan. Peter's view of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, did not include the shame and horror of public crucifixion. Here is the paradox of Peter at this point. Just seconds earlier, he had made one of the most profound declarations anyone has ever made. But in his mind, he had no category for the suffering servant or the crucified son of God. He simply could not grasp how someone as good and holy and pure and righteous as Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, would suffer and die like a common criminal. Third, Peter thought he knew God's will better than Jesus. At this point, he stands in direct opposition to God's plan to bring salvation to the world. We must not water this down. The text said that he rebuked Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. You don't go around rebuking the Son of God. In the Old Testament, people got killed for that sort of irreverence. Fourth, Peter wanted a kingdom without a cross. And who could blame him? We can barely understand what crucifixion meant to the Jews in the first century. It was the ultimate instrument of public torture. Perhaps lynching would be the closest modern equivalent. Today, we wear bright, shiny crosses to remember Jesus' death. 
No Jew would have understood such a thing. To them, the cross meant brutal, public, bloody, painful, agonizing, and shameful death. That's what was ahead for Jesus. No wonder Peter rebuked him. And then Jesus rebuked Peter, but with one difference. Jesus rebuked him publicly. Mark makes it clear that Jesus looked at all the disciples when he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. First, Jesus calls Peter the rock. Seconds later, he calls him Satan. That leads to our second question. Why did Jesus use such strong language? Why did he call Peter Satan? First, Peter was guilty of false intimacy and ignorant presumption. I want you to note this context. After the wonderful things that Jesus said to Peter, I imagine it must have gone to his head. Perhaps he was feeling his oats a little bit. After all, if he is the rock and has the keys to the kingdom, notwithstanding that the keys were given to all the apostles, not just to Peter, and they ultimately belong to the whole church, surely he has the right to take Jesus aside and do a bit of iron sharpens iron, one man helping another, that sort of thing. But he was wholly out of line in what he did. Second, Jesus knew that Satan stood behind Peter's well-meaning but misguided words. Satan's plan for Jesus was always avoiding the cross. In the wilderness, Satan had taken Jesus to a high mountain, offering him all the kingdoms of the world if only he, Jesus, would bow down and worship him, Satan. It was a seductive temptation. Jesus, why go through the pain and shame of the cross? Worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Even though Peter was not conscious of being used by Satan, he was truly doing his work by attempting to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Third, Jesus knew he must go to the cross in order to provide salvation for the world. That's why Jesus used the words must. He must go to Jerusalem, or he must suffer, and he must die, and must rise from the dead. Nothing would happen by chance. Even the fierce hatred of the Jewish leaders fulfilled God's eternal plan. Nothing was contingent in the mind of God about the death of his son. That's why the Bible, in Revelation 13, 8, speaks of him as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Eugene Peterson catches the sense of Jesus' answer this way. But Jesus didn't swerve. Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. That's a good way to put it, because Peter, at that point, had no idea how God works. To Peter, the cross was evidence of failure. To Jesus, the cross was the purpose for which he came to earth. To Peter, the cross meant that Jesus had been defeated. To Jesus, the cross was the means by which Satan was defeated. To Peter, the cross meant that evil had won the day. To Jesus, the cross was the path to the final victory over sin. To Peter... The cross meant that Jesus was gone forever. To Jesus, the cross led to an empty tomb. To Peter, the cross was a badge of shame. To Jesus, the cross brought salvation to the world. 
to Peter, the cross meant they had no message to preach. To Jesus, the cross became the message they would preach to the nations. And to Peter, the cross made no sense. To Jesus, the cross displayed the wisdom of God. So greatly did Peter and Jesus differ at this point that Jesus could say, Get behind me, Satan. When he said, You have become a stumbling block to me, he used a word for an animal trap that was triggered by the means of a stick. When the animal brushed that death stick, the trap closed on him. Jesus knew that Peter's well-meaning words were like a death stick to God's plan of salvation. Our third and final question calls for our attention. What should we make of this episode? What does it say to us today? Let me suggest a few things for our consideration. First, some good people sometimes do the devil's work. Peter was most certainly a good man, His foolish words here cannot cancel his brave statement of faith a few seconds earlier. What a man Peter was. If he was the first to climb the summit of Christ's messiahship, he is also the first to fall off the cliff. Though Peter was undeniably right in what he said earlier, he was just as wrong here. From him we learn something about the danger of spiritual presumption. Second, Our victories and defeats often come back to back. It's not hard to see why it should be this way. Victories naturally tend to build our confidence. When Peter heard the wonderful things said to him, did it go to his head? I think it probably did. And just as quickly as he rose, so quickly did he fall. And it was his rising that led to his falling. So it will be for all of us. We will be like Elijah winning some great victory in Mount Carmel, only to run in fear from Jezebel the next day. And there's always a Jezebel. Satan has lots of Jezebels, lots of traps, lots of death sticks to put in our path. And because he's smart, Satan knows the best time to trap us often comes from after some great victory. While we celebrate, our defenses are down. Our emotions take over, our guard lowers, And we do things and say things that we later regret. Third, our closest friends may sometimes become our worst enemies. In this case, Peter's loyalty was not in question. What he said was foolish and wrong and reflected wrong thinking, but down deep, he truly loved the Lord. That's what makes this so tricky. We may find that our loved ones and close friends unwittingly become dupes of Satan, tools he uses to get us sidetracked spiritually. In fact, I dare say that this sort of temptation would more likely come from a husband, a wife, a co-worker, a close friend, a parent, a child, a close relative, or a friend we've known for a long time. In their attempt to protect us from what they perceive as danger, they may be Satan's tools to keep us from doing God's will. Our close friends sometimes will not understand God's call on our lives, and in their attempts to dissuade us, they may end up doing the devil's work. That doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to the cautions and the honest questions of our loved ones. Sometimes they sense something we have missed, But other times they may be a death stick to our attempts 
to serve the Lord. Consider the young person who senses God's call to do mission work in some faraway place. Such a call may not be well received by those closest to them. Some will say, you have plenty, we have plenty of need right here in America. Or you can make more money by finding a job in this country. Or I don't want my grandchildren to grow up in Nigeria. Or you're throwing away a good education if you go overseas and serve the poor. Consider the person who wants to give more of their income to the Lord's work this year. But with an uncertain economy, giving more seems foolish and even dangerous. They may say, we need all the money we make to pay our bills. What is the right thing to do? Or a person may sense God's call to leave the business world, to serve the Lord in ministry that pays a fraction of what they're making now. Their friends think they're not. When we set out to serve the Lord, we can always think of a thousand reasons we shouldn't. Or why should we play play it safe or take it easy and not be too extreme? If we don't think of those excuses, our friends will likely think of them for us. And unwittingly, our friends may become tools of Satan, or we may be the same for them. It's an easy road to go down, the road of least resistance. It's much harder to take the road that leads to the cross. And don't expect that many people will cheer us on when we take that road. To return to the story for a moment, how striking that one who Jesus called the rock should become a stumbling block so quickly. As it was for Peter, so it will be for all of us. Our strengths and our weaknesses lie side by side. Often, they seem to be interconnected. Sometimes they seem to be welded together. So quickly we rise, so quickly we fall. As I studied this passage, it occurred to me that in some ways, this was a greater sin than Peter's denial. Though it is his denial that we remember, and not this occasion, this is the only time Jesus called Peter Satan. At the denial, Peter hurt himself. And he hurt the cause of Christ generally. But here, Peter directly, though unwittingly, attacked God's plan of salvation. Satan did everything he could to keep Christ from the cross, and he does everything he can to keep us from following Jesus. In 1839, two men from the London Missionary Society landed in the New Hebrides, a chain of 80 islands in the South Pacific. Those two missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals in November of that year. Eventually, other missionaries came, and the gospel began to take root on some of the islands. Nineteen years later, a young man named John Patton set sail for the New Hebrides. When he announced his desire to go, his friend, Mr. Dixon, exploded. The cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! But to this, Patton responded, Mr. Dixon... You are advanced in years now, and one day soon you will be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die, serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That is the spirit that has animated the worldwide Christian movement ever since the 
resurrection. Peter's story should cause us all, cause us all love to pause and think about ourselves and about how quickly we may do the devil's work without even knowing it. If we constantly live on the level of our emotions, we may find ourselves actually opposing Jesus. Ashamed of our faith and avoiding the tough challenge to live like Jesus. If we think that our understanding equals God's will, we are bound to fall into many serious errors. And if we think that the way of the cross is not for us, then we ought to ask ourselves if we have ever really trusted Christ at all. Sometimes our problem boils down to the fact that when we want something God doesn't offer, few demands, an easy life, a faith that is personal but doesn't demand much of us, a life without struggle or pain. But that life only exists in our mind. There is no way of salvation apart from the cross of Jesus. For it was on that cross that the wrath of God was satisfied. The price for sin was paid and our guilt was removed. Oddly enough, Peter's attempt to rescue Jesus would have doomed his own soul. Jesus had to die in order for Peter to be forgiven. The law of the cross is the law of the kingdom. Those who would enter heaven must go by way of the cross in Christ. Apart from him, there is no hope. There is no heaven. There is no forgiveness. And there is no salvation. So it will ever be for the followers of Christ. Peter was a good and great man. And I say that in full recognition of all his faults. We see the grace of God at work because though he fails again and again, he learns from his mistakes. Like most of us, he makes many mistakes. But he generally doesn't make the same mistakes twice. Later on, he will stand on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, boldly preaching the gospel to some of the very people who crucified our Lord. There he will proclaim that Jesus was delivered up by God who knew what would happen and then by the hands of wicked men was put to death with the angels. 3,000 people will be saved on that day. Peter came to see that the cross was absolutely necessary in God's plan. So though he makes many other mistakes, he never makes this mistake again. Let me wrap up by noting how close heaven and hell are in in the human heart. It's just a short trip from one to the other. Peter is called blessed in verse 17 and Satan in verse 23. We can one moment be praising God and the next moment uttering some foolish, unkind, critical remark that would be better left unsaid. We can pray and we can swear. We can quote scripture and we can gossip. We can speak up for Jesus and then play the fool in almost the same breath. These things ought not to be, as James pointed out in his epistle, but they are in all of us. We are either climbing toward heaven by God's grace or sliding toward hell on our own. Peter's story reminds us that it's not one incident alone that makes a life. Though we fall again and again, it's the getting up that marks the true child of God. Aren't you glad that Peter kept getting up? I am. And aren't you glad that Jesus kept on helping him up? I am. Peter was something of a mess. 
But then so are most of us. He was a shaky rock, a fragile stone, an imperfect disciple whom Christ formed into a rock that in the end could not be shaken. So that's our hope too. Though we may do the devil's work from time to time and suffer for it, the mighty Christ comes to set us right again. Amen.